Hello and welcome to Rocket Accelerated Geek Conversation. This episode is brought to you by Pingdom from Solar Winds. I'm Simone de Rochefort, a senior video producer with Polygon, and I'm here tonight with Christina Warren. Wait, no, there, there must be a mistake. I don't hear Christine out there. Is that Brianna Wu, executive director of Rebellion Pack? That's right. That's right. Uh, thanks for holding down the fort for me last week. I appreciate it. I just I had to go on vacation while I saved the little bit of sanity I have left. It's the perfect time but before the before all the primaries start up again. Yes. <laughs> the, the the whole administration has settled in oh. over there in Washington. <laughs> Brianna Wu can go on vacation. That's right. Someone was talking to me about all the work I've got to do for the for the rest of the year. It's good because most of it is travel and <gasps> I don't want to be in my house anymore. But it's like uh you know, it it was weird. Can I tell you so we went down to Florida and uh so we did three things primarily. We went to well, four things. We went to a baseball game, we saw the Yankees play the Rays. We did a couple of days at Disney, did Universal and did NASA. And I have to tell you, so this is, it's weird going down there in the time of COVID. It is bizarre because it's not Disney magic at all. There's like this, this paranoia about masks and no one will get near each other. It is is a freaky (laughs) time. It is freaky. I was just reading, uh, Helen Rosner had a great piece in the New Yorker about, um, the Miami outpost of the New York restaurant Carbone, which opened up during the pandemic. Right. And apparently it's it's hotter right now than the New York Carbone just because Florida's COVID restrictions were so lax. Right. So, so many people were like, um, <clears throat> I'll just go to Florida then. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> which horrified me as I was reading about it. And this this wasn't like this month. This was like last you know, winter and fall when we were still, you know, ostensibly in lockdown. People were going to Florida to go to Carbone to right. eat at the hot Italian restaurant. Ooh, no, you're so fancy. Dead on because Disney had very hard rules in place and Universal didn't. And the difference Ooh. was just night and day, right? Like there's no friendly Disney like aspiring actress going, please put on that mask. I mean, it was it was just nobody gave an F over at Universal. Uh, it gee. was I mean, I'm vaccinated. So I'm fine. But uh, yeah, um, just to really be honest, what really surprised me is how many people were bringing very young children down there, like three Mm -hmm. or four. And I'm not going to tell people how to parent, but, uh, you know, obviously kids can't be vaccinated. I was really surprised at that decision. Yeah, that's I. (laughs) (laughs) I. Yeah, it's curious. I don't know enough about the the science of their COVID vulnerability or vaccination to speak either way. But I will I will give you a resounding, huh? <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Let's get to some news. Let's get oh, to some news. Oh, we've got some exciting ones oh, this week. We should tell listeners uh, the reason Christine isn't here this week is because of Microsoft Build, um, and there's so much great news coming out of that. I just saw that uh, Unreal Engine Five uh, is uh, coming into beta. So literally, as soon as we finish this podcast, I'm going to install that on my machine. But watch Build this week. A lot of great stuff is uh, bound to come out of it. Yes, you can do that at microsoftbuild.com. I hear that Christina is doing like a bunch of late shifts, but she's doing like live stuff and pre-recorded stuff. So if you catch her, then you get to, I don't know, take a screenshot of it and tweet at us or something. (laughs) But now on to our stories. So this first one is very exciting. It is possible, according to Ars Technica, that Valve is making a portable Gaming PC, quote unquote, designed to run a large number of Steam game of games on the Steam PC platform via Linux. So this is not a device that they have officially announced. However, it has been both teased by Gabe Newell and uh, people found that in a recent Steam update, there was language added to the code about something called, quote unquote, Steam Pal which is very much not a final name. Let me be clear on that. Uh, Which initially people thought, oh, this is some kind of controller, some kind of proprietary Steam controller. But ours is now reporting that it is not merely 
a controller, but an all-in-one PC with gamepad controls and a touchscreen similar to what the Switch is and similar to other Switch-like gaming PCs uh, from uh, companies like Dell, like Aya, uh, and uh, One Netbook, respectively. But this one is Valve's, which is very exciting because the last time they tried to do consoles, boy, did it not go well. <laughs> Brianna, what is your initial reaction to this? So I find this to be a very credible... Well, let's start with the up top. Like, is this likely? And I think, uh, you know, based on the the code, which is, you know, ours always reports this stuff very deeply and very technically. Um, I personally find this to be a very credible uh, rumor, personally. Um, I, I think it's worth going back in time a bit and really thinking through Valve's uh, efforts to kind of game into the mainstream. You know, they had, I, I, I may be the only one old enough to remember this because it was like nine <laughs> years ago, but they were like, hey, y'all, we got the best controller. It's going to revolutionize everything. It's going to make all your other controllers extinct and you're never going to want to do anything but like uh, game on Valve again. And then it was like, instead of thumbsticks, it was uh, two basically touch pads yeah. and recessed circular things. And I was super pumped for XCOM 2 when that came out, so I bought it and I tried to make it work. Like, I literally <laughs> played 20 hours of it. Just straight out garbage. Uh, you also had Valve tried to do Valve OS, which was basically a, uh, a, a Linux version of Valve and asking every single game developer to refactor <laughs> everything they'd done for Linux. Uh, that wasn't super successful. Um, <laughs> you know, and then you had Steam Link, which actually was pretty successful, even though they haven't had hardware out for a long time mm -hmm. on that. Steam Link was basically uh, letting you put your uh, PC, which may be in your office, and play it on your your home television. Uh, you know, Steam also has a, what is it called? Is it big screen mode or something like that? It is certainly something like that. Yeah, it's basically a mode where it's a console-like interface for your Steam library that's easy to access on a PC, uh, on a TV with your uh, controller. So, you know, they've been making a lot of plays into this space. Uh, so I find this very credible. What about you? You. Do you do you think this is going to happen? I mean, I do because the you know usually with stories like this, like you noticed when I was telling you guys about the story, I said the words uh, according to and allegedly a couple times probably. But in the article, the writer Sam Makovec uh, very much says uh, literally, "I can confirm the device's existence." And like alludes a couple times to, yeah, people told me this is real, it's real. And that would not have happened, I think, it, just in terms of the legality of it, were because his reputation would be in the trash if it turned out that this wasn't true. So I, I do I do think it's very credible. And also I I kind of came away feeling weirdly optimistic about it. Mm -hmm. I think just because Steam I, even though their past history, as you said, with hardware, like it wasn't fun to use. It wasn't necessarily good for developers or consumers. <laughs> uh, this, just because there are other PCs out there with this design and Steam just has that huge library of games. Like I think probably the biggest digital gaming library that exists. Like they're the best known for this. Uh, I, I was left feeling weirdly positive about this concept, assuming that, like with so many Steam projects, this doesn't become bloated and confused and wither on the vine. No, I think that's dead on. Um, I also think it's really important to think about what's in this space right now. Simone, I know you don't have my deep love of retro gaming uh, to the same sick, unhealthy <laughs> level that I do, but uh, GPD is a company that has been putting out a lot of retro systems, right? Like they have a, it's basically, it's a, think about the old Game Boy uh, with a modern, with a Raspberry Pi in it and an ultra bright screen. Uh, that's what 
GPD is best known for, but they, along with a lot of other people, saw the uh, switch be so mega successful Mm -hmm. and have started bringing things out uh, with that uh, form factor. They have one called the UMPC. I personally don't own this one, but I've looked at it a thousand times because it's just sexy as hell. It, It looks amazing. Like you push... Imagine something like you have the handles of the switch, but you push it up from the bottom and a keyboard is underneath the screen. So, yeah, you can enter in your password, things like that. Um, There's also a lot of uh, Ryzen powered things with that same uh, kind of hardware. If you don't know, Ryzen is, you know, it's NVIDIA's kind of uh, GPU. It's awesome. And Mm -hmm. there are a ton of like AMD uh, I'm sorry, it's AMDs rather. Uh, and there are a ton of these with uh, that form factor. They've done really, really well. Uh, the uh, Neo is one of them. Is gotten just unbelievably good reviews. Can I so, ask if those yeah. devices also, do they do what the Switch does and what the Valve machine reportedly will do, which is to yes. dock with USB-C? Uh, some of them do. Yeah. Uh, I think the Neo does, but the, the selling point of it is, you know, it's got this, it's got a mid tier GPU like the switch and the switch is not exactly a power. It certainly is not. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and it's, it's able to run full windows and give you your whole steam library. So, Mm It's it's like we know technically we can do this. The question is, will someone put out a you know really really ultra premium product mm-hmm. to to make it? Well, happen? I guess that kind of brings me to a different question, which is alluded to in our Technica's write up as well, which is there is a huge chip shortage going on right now, as we have right. discussed extensively on this show. It is arguably a pretty terrible time to be making a new product that has a chip in it. What do you think is the price point that this needs to hit to be a viable product? And you you mentioned calling it a premium product, which the Switch, I think, arguably is not. Uh, it's right. only $400, um, which is expensive, but, you know, not for, not for a, a gaming machine. Um, do you see this as something that would be more expensive potentially and thrive that way? Or do you think it should try to compete with a Switch on its ground? I, I think that's a really good question. You know, the the Valve hardware traditionally has not been afraid to uh, go high. Like the Valve, what is it, their ultra reference uh, VR experience, mm-hmm. the most expensive thing you can buy on the market. The Valve controller was not cheap. The Steam Link isn't particularly cheap. Yeah. You know, if you look at the UMPC, you know, you can end up spending $1,100 on that. If you look at these uh, AMD Ryzen, uh, like the Neo, uh, those Switch competitors, it's, quote, only $700, but that's the early bird pricing. You know, Mm -hmm. I think in the end, it's going to cost like $800. I think for them to bring out something that's really going to bring a top tier experience to this, um, you're really looking at over a thousand dollars. I think um, that's my opinion. Yeah, I actually I like this, and I I think my ultimate takeaway from it is it really shows the proof of concept for the Switch, right? Because I right. think initially when the Switch was announced, there was that question of like do people really want this or do they want a hyper-powerful machine that can sit under their TV always? And obviously, Sony and Xbox are very successful at creating those machines, but the Switch went a different route and it ended up being incredibly popular, especially over this last year when people were stuck in their homes and could play on their TV, but maybe also wanted to like escape to the bedroom and hide away with their Switch or just play family games or just do something different. And this is interesting because it does possess that ability to maybe sit in the middle ground where you could hook it up to a monitor and have a powerful PC in your home that is a small form factor that you could then unplug and, you know, take on a car trip or I don't don't know if it would be a subway machine, but maybe it will be. For all we know, maybe it will be the kind of machine that you pop into your purse, you take it on the subway, you play some games, and then you go to work when we are allowed to go back into the office. I don't know. But I I think it's a really interesting idea to have a machine that sits in that space. 
I, I think you have to look at it from a developer point of view, right? So if you want to talk really technically here, the switch, the OS layer there, like your operating system layer for the switch, it's it's negligible, right? Um, and if you're developing for the switch, you can really hyper concentrate on, you know, it's one GPU, it's one operating system. You can really optimize to have your game look great there. Mm-hmm. What this, what they're going to be doing, uh, what Steam is going to be doing here is so much bigger. They're going to have to run all the freaking windows, all of it, all of it <laughs> to have Steam <laughs> stuff run. You're going to have to have DirectX on there. Um, you know, if you think about what makes the M1 MacBook so great, which is this unified development layer and mm-hmm. optimization, 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 a Steam machine necessarily to run the entire Steam library has to go the opposite direction. And it has to be like a much more powerful general purpose uh, computer. And in addition, for the inside, you have a lot of games that are designed for beefy external graphics cards like Cyberpunk, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's designed for something with the heatsink. I mean, this is I, we don't know if it'll be integrated graphics, but it probably will, right? Yeah. So this is, it's just a completely different problem that they're trying to solve. Another thing is how do they limit the library to say this works on this machine? Now, Valve is big enough that they can go to, I'm just trying to think of a random game, like uh, uh, say Darksiders. Mm-hmm. Darksiders, not a not a really visually complex game. It's got that flat kind of World of Warcraft shading on all the characters. Good solid frame rate, action-oriented, a game you can pick up and play, right? Maybe they go to all the developers out there that are developing that game and they make a, you know, a, a, a best with Steam machine or whatever they're calling this, right? <laughs> and they they curate a library for it in a store and work with people directly. That's one way they could do this to like get it at a lower price point if they're not trying to offer the entire Steam library, just some games in your Steam library. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, now you're making me think that it is going to be really big. <laughs> like physically, physically big. <laughs> it could be. I, I, there are a lot of different directions yeah. that could go with this. So, well, I, are you going to buy one? Are you a PC? Oh, absolutely not, Brianna. You know me. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> actually, okay, but I, I will say, actually, you know what? No. Let me back up and tell you a story. <laughs> I had a couple <laughs> DVDs today. Uh, not like gaming DVDs or movie DVDs, but DVDs that someone had burned information onto for me. And I wanted to look at them today. And I I looked at my MacBook Pro, my 13-inch MacBook Pro, and I said, oh, no. I looked at my 15-inch MacBook Pro, and I said, oh, no, no disk drive here either. I looked at my iMac, lo and behold, no disk drive there either. I looked at both of the Alienware gaming laptops that I'm borrowing from work right now, and neither of them have a disk drive either. (laughs) Literally, the only things in my home that have a disk drive are my PlayStation and my Xbox. which I don't know, just goes, I didn't even look at the switch. I didn't even bother because I'm a smart lady. The point of this uh, semi unrelated story is I uh, am happy borrowing these gaming laptops from my work. I like the potential, the idea of a small form factor because having more huge, there's no room for more huge devices in my house. There's no room for a gaming PC, anything like that. That being said, uh, for me, having another device that doesn't, that is incredibly powerful, runs Windows and doesn't have a disk drive in my house. No, I have no need for this. I need something with a, I need a, I need a, a dongle. Oh, no. I need another dongle. <laughs> um, yeah, we that's just to, how I feel. What we need to do is to move you to a bigger apartment. Uh, give me so many hundreds of thousands of dollars. What New York real estate is so easy, you know, it's just great landlords. Oh my God. What a good transition. Uh, I know. Hey, (laughs) but first this episode is brought to you by Pingdom from solar winds. If you have a website, what purpose does it serve? 
Whether it's driving people to your products, collecting sales leads for your company, or providing customer service with a contact form, when these critical transactions fail, you lose out on business. Not to mention the bad experience for your users. But there is a solution. Transaction monitoring from Pingdom. Starting at just $10 a month, transaction monitoring runs checks 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and will alert you when cart checkout, forms, or login pages fail before they affect your customers and your business. Pingdom will notify you the moment there is a failure over SMS, email, or via your favorite apps like Slack, Ops Genie, and PagerDuty. Depending on what's being monitored or the severity of the outage, you can even customize who's alerted and how they get the notification. Don't let your users discover a problem on your website. <laughs> Weakness is abhorrent. You should be the first person to know, and it's super easy to get started. Just go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now for a 30-day free trial with no credit card required. And then when you're ready to buy, use the code ROCKET at checkout to get a huge 30% off your first invoice. That is, again, code ROCKET at checkout. And the URL is pingdom.com slash RelayFM. Get that 30-day trial for free. Thank you so much, Pingdom from SolarWinds, for their support of this show and RelayFM. <laughs> what? I got really got stuck on that little ditty. I came I, up with good. a really good theme good. song last week. You weren't yeah, here well, to hear it. Yeah, well, I think I think what? I you don't know this about me, but I play piano pretty well. I well, should bring my piano down to the podcast recording office. We can, and I can jam. Just play play a little jazz number behind you as you're yeah. reading this, and then we could just I just give it. It just needs a little texture. I feel a little musical texture. Oh my god! Yeah. Okay. This is a good idea. <laughs> Maybe for a live show, we can just make it a jam session. <laughs> anyway, hey, let's get back to that really smooth transition. Remember how just like a minute ago, Brianna mentioned real estate? And I was like, whoa, good transition. Well, now you are about to know why. Uh, Airbnb had what I am calling the website equivalent of a Nintendo Direct in which it wasn't like a Nintendo Direct at all, but they did announce a bunch of new updates to their platform. And Nintendo Direct is the, you know, baseline that I have to be in touch with, with what corporations announce. Um, they talked through some changes uh, that are happening across their platform that will affect users as well as hosts. And I just wanted to call out some of the changes that I saw that I thought were really good. Um, as well as some weird, weird directions their CEO sees them moving in the future, which only get weirder the more I read them. <laughs> um, but I want to start with the positive because I have less to say about it. But it's like because that's because I'm not, you know, I have nothing to be critical about. Uh, the first one is a no brainer. Flexible dates and flexible criteria matching. I know when I always go to book something, I'm always looking at like if, you know, if I moved it just one day this way or one day that way, would it be $100 cheaper? And so often, especially with car rentals, at least before the chip shortage, it was. It truly was. <laughs> when, I, when I went on my trip to uh, Washington this December with my friend Taylor, we booked a car and we had it booked through, you know, certain dates in December. And it was like $2,000. And then we changed it. We added like one extra week on. So it was a full month and it was like $300 cheaper. It was in it was ridiculous. Anyway, the point is, this is great for consumers. Uh, they also added a bunch of accessibility options to housing and filters for housing and to their experiences that you can purchase through the site. So accessibility filters for searching for accessible homes. They are apparently increasing the inventory of accessible homes. I don't know how that works, but it is interesting to me. Um, as well as options for free pricing for caregivers for disabled people to attend uh, experiences that are purchased through Airbnb. So like if you have a caregiver and you want to do the experience, your caregiver doesn't have to buy it like another adult ticket too, uh, which I think is a very overlooked but super cool update. Um, that Those are the good things. Those are the good things. 
Now, let me move on to the weird things. Unless, Brianna, you have anything to, <laughs> no, to add. please proceed. Please proceed. Okay. I've got my own <laughs> I, I think my opinions on Airbnb and what they've done to the housing market are pretty well known at this point, but they're about to get more complicated. CEO Brian Chesky has some ideas about how Airbnb can continue to disrupt the rental market. So apparently throughout the pandemic, he saw an uptick in longer bookings, like people going, oh, I'm going to stay here for 28 days. I'm going to do a full month stay in an Airbnb. And he is saying, he told The Verge. By the way, can I just interrupt yes. for a second? That's not a good thing, you <laughs> It's just not. <laughs> Think through that. Huh. There's a pandemic. There's a nationwide flood of evictions and people losing their homes. How can we make this good for Airbnb? F you, buddy. <laughs> like, that's not a good thing. Sorry. Oh, God. No. Sorry. It's good. It's I was good. just outraged for a moment. Well, no. I mean, we're, keep up that energy because he went <laughs> on to say, quote, I think eventually in the future, people will start paying for rent the way they pay for cable television or for Netflix. You pay on a month-to-month basis. He also says that our current rental system where, you know, you do things like credit checks and paying first month, last month, uh, etc., quote, was invented before the technology allowed almost all of this to be automated. It's like using a rotary dial phone. Suddenly, we have smartphones. End quote. He also goes on to say Airbnb's trust and safety team is more sophisticated than what landlords use and that eventually people will prefer not to sign one-year leases. I I eventually, at some point, I just started like copy-pasting the things that he was saying into my notes document because I just did not understand the thought process that was happening in this man's head. I feel like for me, it was the opposite where it was shorting like he, he's making the statements and then my mind is exploding with all the problems it would cause. And then I'm just, you know, Robocop at the end of it where he's like, directive four, enforce the law. Directive four, enforce the law is shutting down. Yeah. That's what I was, I was like short circuiting reading this. Yeah. Oh, please, please proceed. I get, I mean, where to even begin um okay. i would like to begin actually with the the trust and safety team being more sophisticated because how many times on this show have we covered some weird airbnb problem i i do believe there may be even be a member of rocket that was kind of eh, exposed to kind of a low-level airbnb scam i wish she was here today to blast them <laughs> but yeah we've covered Ghost rentals and people manipulating the system. And we've covered racism on this podcast of people being kicked out. I mean, you know, you've got vaccinations, like people actually saying, well, sorry, you know, I don't know if this is on Airbnb, but like, hey, if you've been vaccinated, sorry, you can't stay here. It's not oh, safe. Gosh. So, And I yeah. think above all, with, with all of those experiences, uh, obviously bad experiences and bad reviews make more of a splash than good ones. But the common theme of all of those experiences was people who wanted to stay somewhere Right. Having a terrible experience and not being able to have any recourse with Airbnb because a company is not like <laughs> they their interest is in making money, not in necessarily reimbursing you or like really digging into every little thing that happens and making sure people are protected. Um, And the great thing about renting, you know, far be it for me to defend landlords. I will not. However. There are lots of laws, certainly where I live, specifically in New York City. New York City has such strong tenant rights. And I'm not super clear on how Airbnb would interact with that kind of system. Um, and I I don't think that Mr. Uh, Mr. Chesky has necessarily thought that one through. But I I will go on the record here and say I don't think Airbnb's trust and safety team is more sophisticated than <laughs> than any any of what we already have in place with traditional rentals. I just don't trust them because I don't think that uh, the I don't think that renter security is necessarily their number one priority. 
I, I couldn't money. agree more. And look, ultimately with your landlord, right? Not your landlord specifically, Simone, though I Who have some crazy. Suck. If I Who ever does? saw him, I would have some words for him about his uh the the care they've taken to making sure your toilet is functional. I oh would my have God. words with them. Yes, um, thank you. But but have you ever had a landlord and thought to yourself, gee, you know what would make this situation better? If I had no legal protections or rights whatsoever, like basically at will employment, what if I could bring that same concept to my living situation? Who <laughs> <laughs> would say that? No, think about this. We had to have a nationwide moratorium on evictions uh, during coronavirus. And and by the way, the rent was still accruing. uh, And there are people that, uh, like millions of people whose lives are just going to be ruined from losing their job because of coronavirus. But they were able to, at the very least, not be evicted during coronavirus because we had a federal and many state moratoriums on evictions. You know what that didn't apply to? Airbnb, you know what would happen if you got into a long-term rental situation with Airbnb? You'd have no damn rights whatsoever. You'd be in a real mess. Yes. Thank you. It's just, it's it's the worst idea I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. I, we've all seen, like the best rental situations I've had are you're renting from someone, they own their home and they own a second property. And that's like their income is taking care of this one property. Uh, And you have like that relationship with them. Yeah. That's one person. They love their building. It's their asset. For me, that's been a good situation. What's been a bad situation is when it's a large housing conglomerate that owns that. And you're talking to someone in an office that has a manager and they own 70 other buildings in the state. Now, imagine if it's not even based in your state. It's nationwide. Like, think about what a nightmare that would be if you had a problem. And there are so many uh, conglomerates like this that are buying up properties and renting them out on Airbnb. Like, from my, I I have had a very, I have had very good Airbnb experiences, and I've had experiences where uh, it's very clear that this is a large operation that's being run by some kind of company, specifically out in LA. uh, The last. A couple of the times that I had to go out there back in 2018, I believe, we stayed in this in these apartments that were like identical apartments in this very upscale new building, gentrifying Koreatown. Um, and at the time, I I definitely bear some responsibility for this, but we are trying not to use Airbnb anymore uh, on our team, kind of because of situations like this. You know, we didn't have a problem with the building, but it it was one of those weird buildings where it feels like nobody lives there, but it has it is being rented out to short term renters who are coming to visit LA. They want to be in a central location. Um, You know, there was a view of the Hollywood sign. And this very uh, sparsely furnished, you know, with Ikea furniture, very large, spacious apartment that would, I'm sure, rent for thousands and thousands of dollars. Uh, But it was on Airbnb and people did not live there. It was not someone's home that was being rented out. It was a rental apartment. Um, And that was a it was a weird situation. And it feels very wrong in terms of what it does to the fabric of the city. The good situation I had, I think I talked about on this podcast, was when I booked for the wrong dates when I visited uh, upstate New York this summer, and the very nice person uh, helped me switch the dates. <laughs> so I want to talk about this because this yeah. is this is something that has really been the news lately. Uh, so what we're seeing here in Boston, um, I'm going to start with something that sounds like a positive thing, but it's actually a really negative thing. So I happened to look up the value of my house the other day. And I've lived here for about two years, and my house has appreciated over $150,000 in uh, under two years. That sounds good, right? This is terrible. 
Because the reason it is appreciating so quickly is you have uh, large-scale conglomerates, real estate conglomerates have figured out, we're going to buy up the entire housing supply Mm -hmm. in the United States. Um, So you have normal buyers that are coming in. Like, take my town, Dedham. Good schools Mm -hmm. here. A lot of professionals commute to Boston, which is about 30 minutes away. So you've got someone, like, think about this, a young family, maybe they want to have a kid. They want to move to my town right outside of Boston. So they would have to come in, bid on a house, which is already going to be nearly a million dollars. And then on top of that, so let's say you afford the down payment. If you want to avoid PMI on that, you're going to need to have about $150,000 just as your down payment. And then you figure out the, the mortgage and all of that. This is the evil part, Simone. On top of that, on top of the $150,000 you would have to save to avoid PMI, you've additionally got to save an additional $100,000 oh. to give the, the the person you're buying the uh, the house from in cash to go over the appraisal <sighs> value. Because if my particular house, when I bought this, it was appraised at, I think it was six six seventy five six fifty or something. But so, and the bank won't give you more money. They won't lend you more money above the appraisal house. But if you have 10 people coming in trying to get the same house, what they do is they say, well, I'll give you 675. I'll give you 700. I'll give you 725. I'll give you $750,000. You have to have that money in cash to go compete against these big conglomerates. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, because all the other houses in my neighborhood have gone for so much more, that means my property tax is now skyrocketing because the amount I pay every year in property tax to pay for schools, good things, the roads, is based on the value of my home. So, oh, wow. so all of these conglomerates coming in and driving up these prices, like if Airbnb did this and it was successful, it would accelerate this end of individual buyers being able to buy property in the United States, something that's already at an emergency, terrible, not good situation. This is super timely. I just saw a thread on Twitter from the CEO of Redfin, the uh, real Mm -hmm. estate website this week, just talking about some of the completely deranged things that he's observed in the the home buying market this year. Like in the the top of the thread was I think the weirdest one, which was the prospective buyer offering to name her firstborn child after the seller, uh, yeah. and her offer was not accepted. But I think the one that stood out to me was sellers buying a huge percentage of sellers buying homes sight unseen because yeah. you have to do it so quickly or else it's going to be gone. And part of that is I think just desperation of people looking for homes in a market with a housing shortage during a pandemic. And part of it is certainly large companies buying up property because there's this hot rental market. Uh, I want to very briefly (laughs) continue complaining, briefly touch on the current rental systems uh, being outdated. Before you do that, can I just say something really quickly there? Because it's very related to what you just said. What you're talking about when you buy a house unseen is you're giving up, in many cases, your ability to get an appraisal and an inspection. You're forfeiting your inspection. Something my inspection turned up is that my electrical box uh, is an is so old, it's not a fire hazard, but it's close. Oh. And I just had to spend about $10,000 having that fixed and replaced and upgraded. That allowed me, knowing that was there with the appraisal when we were negotiating my house price, allowed me to get other things in return from that. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? So the yeah. the house inspection turned up, it was an asset for me to then go to the lovely woman I bought the house from and say, okay, well, we need this because this is worth 10000 less. Additionally, every if you forfeit your inspection, 
you are still on the hook for the bank for all of that. So if I, let's say, Simone, you agree to buy my home for 850 and then the inspector comes in and says, well, Bree's box is a fire hazard. That's going to set the place on fire. This place is only worth 800 Now you're on the hook for $50,000 more because the bank is mm-hmm. not going to lend you that money. Yeah, my uh, friend who just bought a house in Oakland, you know, they did have it inspected, but uh, they needed to replace all the windows. And I can absolutely picture that being some and and they paid for it themselves. But I can totally see that being something where you buy this house, and then you get to it and have managed to have it inspected and realize, okay, now 30,000 more dollars on top of that, I guess. That's fine. That's great for everyone. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) The rental system. Yes, it is outdated. But yet, I mean, there's online payment in a lot of cases. There are rental portals. What are what like incredible technology is Airbnb bringing to this beyond its search algorithms? Um, okay. And final, final, I swear, final thought. Uh, people, uh, the uptick in bookings uh, during the pandemic. I actually, yeah, maybe I don't actually have much to say about this because I think you said you made that very, very, very good point, Bree about it being about there being a lot of evictions uh yeah. before the eviction moratorium and yeah. um which actually is is that nationwide uh, I, I know it's in it, new york but i think it was up to the states if i remember correctly oh i could be correct about i could be incorrect about that either way i think i think your point is very valid that people were evicted uh in a lot of cases and certainly one way to very quickly correct that would be hopping onto Airbnb and finding temporary housing for oneself. I also, I I mean, I have friends who did this exact thing, which was to be like, hey, we're tired of being in our apartment in this part of New York. Let's take a little staycation. Let's go to a different neighborhood just for a month. And and they did that. I, I really, really, really don't think that that in any way replaces being able to have a long-term home, being able right. to have belongings, like furniture and books and things. Those aren't things that if you're living month to month, you can't have any of that stuff. You have to put it in storage. And I, I don't understand. I, I, I don't know. I, th- this there, there are two experiences here that are like opposite sides of the coin. One is the person desperately needs this temporary housing for whatever reason. Maybe they've been evicted. Maybe uh, they've lost their job. I don't know. And the other is somebody that genuinely does not want to live month to month because they have a long-term rental of their own, but they want a, a brief change. And that's an experience of uh, of privilege, certainly. Yeah. But it's, it's a vacation, <laughs> which is... I, I think what the tech industry excels at, the innovation that we bring to experiences generally is reducing friction from what the historic example of that is. Mm-hmm. So if you're talking about renting a movie, right? Like it's certainly more convenient to sit on my couch than drive to Blockbuster and return a VHS tape, right? Yeah. That's that's kind of, I think I would call that generally overall a positive uh, experience that tech brings in reducing friction. But if you look at something like Theranos, where she wanted to, she took the tech industry approach to basically side-skirting all this regulation, meaning to keep (laughs) patients safe, uh, I think I would call that a bad example of tech trying to circumvent, uh, reduce friction. Someone like Airbnb with this little credibility as Airbnb has towards uh, towards guests, basically. I mean, the housing market is correctly one of the most regulated things that exists. Renter rights, homeowner rights. This stuff is complicated because this stuff yeah. really effing matters. And if you think you want the Theranos playbook brought to your living situation, you're out of your damn mind, I'm sorry to say. You've done another swear, just in time. It's Sorry. okay. Is <laughs> damn a swear? Can we say that? I, I think we can, but I want to jot it down just in case because I don't want to okay. get in trouble. Sorry, Jim. Audience, you know, the great benefit of generally having a three-person show is that when one of them swears, I can rely on the other one to jump in and start talking while I frantically write down a time code. <laughs> and when it's just two of us, 
there's just going to be a little awkward silence. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, Well, let us transition. Actually, before we do, let me briefly say that this episode of Rocket is brought to you by Make Do from Relay FM. If you like our show, there's a good chance you'll like that show. You don't have to monetize your hobbies, but so many of us do. And if you do want that, then Make Do is the podcast that will be your cheerleader. So host Tiff Arment is a glass artist, painter, and photographer with a not-so-secret past in Broadway costuming, which rocks. And her co-host is Julia Scott, a journalist, potter, and self-proclaimed textile goblin. They, between them, have all of the hobbies that I wish I had had during this pandemic. Can you imagine? Um, so they, they talk about monetizing your hobbies and how to do that uh, efficiently. Uh, some of the episodes that they have include the myth of the tragic artist, which is uh, so important. It's so uh, it's such an intrinsic part of the writing community that everyone's like, you got to suffer to write. Even Hemingway, in one of my favorite letters that he wrote to Scott Fitzgerald, was like, to be a writer, you you have to suffer. Um, you, the, the, a little character building is good, but you don't have to suffer. You don't have to, like, I don't know, <laughs> ruin your emotional state just to write every day. And that's important to talk about. And they do. Uh, they also have Don't Tell Me How to Hobby. Or you can just start from the beginning and listen to their whole crafty artistic journey. Listen as you hobby, go to relay.fm slash make do or search for make do wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much, podcast network pals. I'll see you on Slack. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, Brianna, do you want to talk about Mass Effect? Oh my God, do I want to talk about Mass Effect? Let it's it all out, baby. Out. <laughs> Oh God! So you're a you're a Mass Effect fan, right? I am a math fan. Yes, effect so fan, math fan, <laughs> fan effect, a, a, a Shep fan. I I don't know. I, mm. I have no word for this. So basically, if you don't know, uh, the thing all of us have been clamoring for for years, a Mass Effect not remake but up HD update has finally come out. Uh, these are basically the first three games that have been remastered with new textures. They've cleaned up a lot of things about the game even though overall it's the same game that you know and love. Um, you know, For the first one, they've cleaned up some of the combat a bit. Uh, they've taken out a few inappropriate butt shots of Miranda. Uh, they've improved the, the texture work exponentially. And the multiplayer component, even though I really ended up enjoying the multiplayer component of three, that you had to play the bait to get the best ending, they've taken that out. And what you have... Did you not like that? I said, yay, but your tone of voice. Yes. (laughs) Anyway, these are these games. They're out. Simone, are you playing these? What are your thoughts about it? I haven't played them yet, but I have a pal that's been playing them and posting screenshots in Discord. And it looks so gorgeous. And I've heard uh, anecdotally from a couple people like on Polygon staff, like on our entertainment team, who are now taking the chance to play it for the first time and are just having this incredible emotional journey that like I went through on Xbox 360. So I definitely need uh, to pick this up and do it again. But it's it's really great to see people still like have those reactions to Mass Effect even so long after it came out. So yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, just to give listeners a little bit of background about Mass Effect, many people, inc- I, at least I do, I don't know if you feel the same way, Simone. Uh, I think Mass Effect is the greatest story our industry has told to date. Um, and it's a science fiction story. You play as Commander Shepard, uh, you become a specter, and you're tasked with kind of solving this mystery of someone who is uh, working with uh, uh, basically the Reapers. And yeah, this is an older game, so I don't think I'm spoiling anything. You come to find out that there's this cycle of life and rebirth through the galaxy where uh, a civilization will rise. And then the Reapers will come uh, through dark space. They will kill everything in the galaxy and then carefully 
arrange things so life will begin again. Um, so you've got this really epic galactic story, and it's told in a very believable way with many different uh, civilizations, uh, many races that don't just look different, but they think differently. Their culture has different things about it. And you kind of have the cost of war and the cost of alliances in a really big galactic way. All of this canvas is played out with some of the best individual character writing our industry has ever seen. Yes. Liara is really, really, really well fleshed out as a person. Jack is really well fleshed out as a person. And it's this, uh, I saw a presentation about this at GDC. It's this contrast between these these moments of the most unimaginable um, things at stake contrasted against these, these characters that are so human and relatable and understandable. And it is just a true emotional journey. It um, really so, like yeah. it sets up this, you know, that, that quintessential loyalty mission sort of format where you uh-huh. get your crew together and you get to know them gradually through missions. It does that just perfectly and it all kind of at the you know you through the first game and then through most of the second game you're getting to know all of these people and growing closer and closer and closer to your little ragtag band of you know people who are gonna save the galaxy and it really builds up to this excellent excellent moment at the end of mass effect 2 where you go on a very very high stakes mission and you know, all of that scaffolding just <laughs> pays off <laughs> with yeah. a beautiful facade. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you, Bree. So I saw um, some conversation going back and forth about the remastered graphics mm-hmm. and whether the changes uh, were for the better or or whether they looked more realistic at the cost of style. And I wanted to kind of get your opinion on that, since I know you have lots of opinions on graphics. And I'm curious I, to hear I what do, you think. and particularly with this game, which is made in Unreal Engine. So as I play it, Simone, I see like a kismet screen in front of me, and I see <laughs> all the diagrams and the shaders and all of that. Like, I have really strong yeah. opinions about the graphical upgrades, because I know exactly how they did it, because I'm so familiar with Unreal Engine 3. Um, personally, I think... I. I, I agree that it's more stylized and realistic. Um, you know, I, I I guess you haven't bought it yet, so you haven't seen this. So the day I got back from vacation, I look and um, I, it's like there's a, a, a 12 gig patch that's come. And mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm not installing that. So I start playing the game and then I let it install overnight and then I, I redo it. And I'm like, what is wrong with all the characters' eyes? Oh, my God. <laughs> and I find out that one of the things that this 12-gig patch did is make their eye, it did all these new retinal shaders, Oh, and it makes their eyes look photorealistic in a way that is mesmerizing and kind of disturbing at the oh, same time. Intriguing. Like you, you've got to see Liara's new eyes. It is weird and i genuinely don't know how i feel about it i don't it. even know what to google for this but i'm gonna <laughs> I, I will try to find it i will try to see retinal shaders i guess <sighs> i don't know in the but, oh yeah. go on no 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 i was just gonna say i i i totally understand that debate um you know i think overall though the the sharper resolution it it you know what's really weird about mm. it is the textures are razor sharp, but the facial animation, the bones in the face, the mesh yeah. influencing bones in the face are still Xbox 360. So there are very few of them compared to a modern game. Uh-huh. So you have what looks like this photorealistic face and then this weird animation on top of it where the mouth isn't quite deforming in a believable way Uh and it's kind of it's it takes in getting used to if that makes sense yeah i yeah i can i can see that i well i'll I'll find these pictures of liara later Uh, i will say the games radar review pointed out that uh dark skin tones look better than they did in the Mm -hmm. original one which makes Mm -hmm. me happy um the lighting hasn't quite been fixed in terms of that. I know uh, with the earlier games, 
some of the lighting on darker skin like hid facial expressions and just was not it wasn't properly calibrated for darker skin in mass effect 3 i vividly remember the darkest skin tone not being half as deep as what my character had had in mass effects 1 and 2 that game had some flaws but uh it looks like they may have uh, judging by these pictures corrected some of that which is great the lighting overall, I really have a problem with it. So in Unreal Engine three, uh, what I can do in a in a scene is I can um, I can basically magnet a light to follow you around a uh, point light, and I can tell this light, hey, don't reflect on the environment, just reflect on this hair, <laughs> yeah. right? So, but they didn't fix this or, or some of the ways they've programmed it are inconsistent. So you'll be watching Shepard's hair in a cutscene, and she'll, it'll like, it'll look like there's a strobe light on her because the point lights keep turning on and off. So oh, oh. it's like they did all these uh, big global changes, but didn't really do all the QR work to go through these kismet scenes and really make sure that hmm. they were all consistent. So, um, I mean, this is not, it's, it's not a perfect version of these games. I think though, if, if you've been, you know, if you've neglected them so far, it's probably a very good opportunity to get your hands on them and, uh, try them out. I, I know what? qualified yeah. Gen Z people who are enjoying this old, old game. I love it. Which one, uh, which character is your favorite in Mass Effect? Uh, I really, really, really like Garrus. Um, And when I I haven't, I never ended up finishing the Shadow Broker DLC, but I loved what was going on with Liara there. I think her arc is one of the best across the series. I have to agree with that. I I really love Jack a lot. I to this day mm-hmm. I don't believe Jack is straight. I just don't believe. I don't accept. Well, it. hey, did, wait, did you hear yeah. about the the modders? Uh, yeah. They've modded this. So. That uh, modders found a bunch of voice lines for romances for every character. I think like oh. every gay romances for every character, including like. Caden in ME1, which is possible to romance Caden as male shepherd in ME3, but not in ME1. Um, really? And Jack, I believe. They found voice lines that had not been implemented in the final game, and they're going to like create, they're going to mod, mod it out, basically, but based oh. on Bioware's own this, writing. I would played on PC and not uh, uh, PS5. That sucks. That is a very good point. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, anyway, I was saying I love Jack. But I really think my favorite character in all of Mass Effect that has really not gotten a fair rap is Miranda. Yes. I love Miranda. She is, you know, she's really suffering from seven of nine syndrome where just because she's, you know, she's a very attractive character. I think a lot of people have like put her in that box where she's, She's so focused and professional and dedicated to her mission, but really deeply cares about her family and has some real higher loyalties that she's willing to sacrifice for. I I love Miranda a lot, and I, I hope people replaying this game yeah. will look on her with fresh eyes. I think that that came out in a time when like awareness the, the the conversation about there being so many sexualized women in games was very loud you know to to positive effect i think people were speaking out about it but it was also a time when that sort of frustration with sexualized women characters was also taken out on the characters even if their writing was good i think miranda was a victim of that for sure because like complaints about the design aside I, I like her a lot as well. Um, and I think she was kind of a victim of of her Bad looks. discourse. Yeah. <laughs> of I discourse. A victim of yep. discourse. The toxic cycle of discourse. Something you said on the show and I literally think about a hundred times a day now. We love to see it. All right. Well, that is it for today. Brianna, tell me, what are you doing this week? I, I, I want to paint a word picture for you, Simone. <gasps> yeah. I want for you to imagine a woman that fell out of an aircraft into the sea and is drowning. It has just one hand up reaching out of the ocean, trying to reach up from the surface and get some air. 
That's how much email I have after two weeks no. of vacation. I am so far behind on this. I literally have Congress people that have written me. They're like, hey, for the third time, we would like a meeting. Can you please get back to me? Uh, so I am trying desperately to catch up on that. I hope they will understand that uh, I've really, really needed a vacation. I wish you the best of luck. <laughs> Um, I, I'm honestly not doing much this week again. Uh, we're starting to talk about E3 plans, which will probably involve a lot of streaming. You know, it's, it's virtually, it's happening virtually this year. So I will not have to go anywhere, but I will be potentially subject to streaming sweatily in my home. Um, we are entering that season here in New York City where, as the hour ticks by when I'm recording Rocket in my closed hot room, I become more and more <laughs> damp. Oh, no. <laughs> but it's okay. <laughs> um, you know how yeah. I feel about the D word. No. Well, it, better than the okay. M word, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's mm. much better. <laughs> so not much going on this week for me. Um, but we're excited to have Christina back next week and talk about everything that happened at Build. And until then, if you liked this show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, which is something that we love because it helps other people find our show and enjoy it too. And uh, thank you so much if you do that. Hey, this episode of Rocket is terminated. Terminated. <laughs>